Now, depending on where you're sitting, it might appear to you as though my sleeve got a little bit enthusiastic in the baptismal tank. <laughs> so I'm a little wet. Um, that's the only reason I have my sleeves rolled up. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. You know, several years ago, uh, while uh, Sherry and I were living in Penang, we had a Bible study in our home for university students, university students from all over the world, from Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, of course, Malaysia, and other parts of the world. And it was a study on worldview. The intention was to try and get um, these university students full of information to consider the claims of Christ. Uh, We call it the journey. We call it the journey because uh, it had become a conviction that most people in my world didn't come to belief all of a sudden. Uh, If you uh, studied in the West, if you studied Western ideals or views on Christianity, you you will know that we love Acts chapter 2, where the gospel is preached, and then after the gospel is preached, there's such well-seated hearts. The only question they have to ask is, what do I need to do to be saved? But we fail to recognize that many times in Scripture, people did not come to belief suddenly. It it took sequential events that happened, many different suddenlies, all in a row, before they could really grasp who this Jesus was. And so that's why we called it the journey, because of scriptures like Acts 17, where the gospel is preached and people say, what? What are you talking about? And so this afternoon, in the time we have left, I'd like for us to look at Luke chapter 24, a a series of suddenlies that happened to two men... As they are walking along a road, their destination, a small town called Emmaus. Uh, First, let's notice that suddenly there is disappointment. If you have a pulse, you have known disappointment. Oftentimes, we make plans for the day. Something happens. Everything is ruined And if we were to begin further back in Luke chapter 23, that chapter opens with a scene that is utter chaos, this raucous religious crowd demanding that Jesus be judged for his crimes. They drag Jesus to the Roman prefect, and and the Roman prefect was the Roman citizen who spoke for the Roman government. What he said was the law. He spoke for God. Because Caesar was God, and this particular prefix's name was Pilate. And, and here's the charges in verse 2 of chapter 23. First, they're, they're the kinds of charges that would outrage a government. The first charge was, this man refuses to allow us to pay our taxes to Rome. In other words, there's nothing we would like better than paying our taxes, but this man won't let us. And another charge was, you know, this, this man right here, he claims to be our king. I mean, why would we want a Jewish king when we already have a Roman king? Why would we want a local guy to be in charge when we've got a foreigner with his foreign occupying army everywhere we go? We want that. We don't want him. But the first charge was actually, he is 
misleading our nation. Nothing worse than bad leadership. Nothing worse than a man who is leading an entire nation away from us, the religious leaders. And so Pilate got together with Herod. They took him to that court. And this fascinating verse in chapter 23, verse 12 says, And on that day, Pilate and Herod became friends. Because until that moment, they were enemies who were unified by this phony court in a crucifixion. That was team building for these two. Until Jesus came, they didn't like each other. But then a crucifixion, and those two men became friends. Woody Allen um, is a Jewish-American Hollywood producer. And he has made a very good living off of filming movies about funny disappointments that are dark and yet make you chuckle at the same time. Several years ago, he was speaking to the graduates of Yale University. And he said this to them. You young people exist in a civilization that stands at a crossroads. Down one road is despondency and despair. Let me just talk to the young adults. Down one road is despondency and despair. Down the other road is total annihilation. I hope you picked the right road. And then he walked off the stage. You see, he was, he was trying to grab a chuckle out of the bucket of discouragement that is constant in our world today. You probably don't know this, but because I'm a white guy, I do this kind of research. Do you know the number one thing that is killing white people all over the world? Medical officials have put it in one big title, the diseases of despair. It's the number one killer of Europeans. It's the number one killer of white North Americans. It's addictions to alcohol, to drugs, to painkillers, to suicide. And while you're trying to chase the West, just be reminded of that. While we pursue evolution and are led to believe this is a good thing, while we face the joy of being among the first world nation, Singapore, there's other stuff that comes with it. Because as our houses get bigger, full of stuff we feel like we can't live without, as our stomachs get fuller of food we can't say no to, somehow our lives still feel empty. And, and empty is hardly ever a good thing. Empty words mean I've suggested something I don't really mean. Empty cupboards mean I have no food for my family. An empty wallet means my American wife doesn't trust me with money. Oh, no, that, that's just a joke. But here's the thing. <laughs> An empty tomb, who would plunder a pauper's tomb? There's nothing in it but a body. That, that was beyond imagination. And see, this is what came suddenly. They thought they were following the king. 
They thought they had a Messiah on their hands. All the other disciples of all the other teachers, no one had a teacher like Jesus. And suddenly he was dead. Their their dreams collapsed. And his followers had begun to, to scatter. This was the first Easter morning, Luke 24. Easter had arised. Joy had come, but they were living life just as if it hadn't. And that's everybody you know. Christ is risen. Joy has arrived. And we're chasing after stuff that doesn't fill our soul. And so those who had loved Jesus they, they were scattered. They were returning to their same old disappointments. And Cleopas and his companion, they were two such followers. They weren't famous. They weren't a part of the leadership core. They weren't even at the Last Supper. They were just some who had hoped this might be the one. They were just two nobodies who thought they had something and suddenly they knew disappointment. Here is good news. If, if you have known discouragement, if you have known disappointment, there's good news in it. Because disappointment, discouragement informs me that I need something more. It wasn't actually that HTB flat that I dreamed about getting. It actually wasn't that beautiful car. It actually wasn't that girl or that guy Disappointment, discouragement informs me that I need something more. And not only that, it informs me that all of my efforts are insufficient. You could be the most religious person in the world, the most diligent, hardworking person in the world. When discouragement comes, it reminds you, my efforts are not enough. But second, suddenly, in the middle of their disappointment, Jesus is there. That brings us back to Luke chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. Now, remember, this was the day. That body should be three days cold, dead in the grave. There, there wasn't even any spices put on that body because the Sabbath day was coming. Remember, the women went to get spices, but they didn't go back because it was a Sabbath day. It was preparation. They couldn't work on the Sabbath. That body didn't even have the benefit of embalming spices to tamp down the stench of death. While they were talking and discussing together, all these things, this is verse 15, Jesus himself drew near. And and that would be enough. But there's more. Jesus himself drew suddenly was there, and he went with them. Now, now do, you, do you understand how extraordinary this is? Those disciples were not on that road looking for Jesus. They, they didn't wake up that day and say, hey, hey, I got a good idea. I bet you Jesus is going to be in Emmaus. Let's go there. Because they knew Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem. All of you guys who wander, this is good news. It's good news for me, who who was blessed with a Christian family, who made all the sacrifices. They were cut out of wills, my parents, so that they could receive Christ. If you come from Scotland, you're sure not going to be a Baptist. But I ran from it 
But just like these two men, while I was on my way to somewhere else, suddenly Jesus was there. Just like some of you, you were on your way to somewhere else, and then Jesus was there. Even when I'm doing the opposite thing, going the opposite direction. You understand, Emmaus, you know what that means? Hot springs. These guys were, I can't bear the discouragement. I need a spa day. I, I know Jesus said, wait here in Jerusalem. I'll come to you. But I don't know what that means right now. He's dead. He's been dead three days. And, and by the way, they had already heard about the women who went and saw the tomb empty. And, and in the Greek, it literally says, but the disciples thought, oh, these wagging tongue women. Who can believe them? They were talking about these things. Going the wrong way. Frank Forrester Church has said that religion is the human response to being alive and having to die. That's why religion exists. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but this is what I do know. Faith in Jesus is a result, a human response to God meeting me while I was on my way somewhere else. Most of us didn't start out this life thinking, How can I plan to find God? Very few of us began even this day. Christians, I'm talking to you, church members. Very few of us started this day thinking, I hope I meet Jesus in the chapel of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'm confessing because I was hoping the speakers were working. I was hoping my sleeve wouldn't get wet. I was not saying with the best of them, I hope I meet Jesus this day. But good news, on my way to worrying about something else, Jesus was there and went with me. God must surprise us on our way to something else. Otherwise, he who made me knows I'll be thinking, boy, I sure was clever to find God the way I did. Sure stinks to be those other people. They're not as smart as me. They're not as righteous as me. It's not our achievement. We were all faced another direction. And that's why repent means turn around. Someone's after you. Suddenly, he's there. Third, suddenly we are full of information. Now, I don't know if you're this way, but I've, I've, I've heard a few prayers in church. We tend to pray to God as if we're informing him. He is the God who knows all things, who made all things. And then we pray, well, God, you know, uh, Brother Chin, he's in the hospital. He's, you know, he's taking his last procedure today. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen? God does. But suddenly there I am informing the God of all things what's going on. And and this is immediately what these two wandering disciples began to do. Jesus like, so what are you talking about? And they say, okay, so you're the only one in this whole land who doesn't know what's been happening. Listen, and then they told him the whole story as if number one, he's not God. And number two, he wasn't there. This this man, Jesus, taught like no other. He did mighty things. This miracle-working prophet. We had hoped that he was the Messiah, but then 
You know, he died. We hoped he would rescue us. You know, the the primary reason we do not know what God is up to in our world is we have vision that is obstructed by all the information we want to tell God. The, The primary reason that we don't know what he's up to is not ignorance, it's the stuff I think I know. And that's what they were doing on that road as this person that they could not yet recognize, this resurrected Jesus who was suddenly there. They were informing him all the stuff they knew and it got in the way, including their ambition. We thought he was the one who is going to restore the kingdom to us. See, there's the ambition that obstructed their vision as to what God was doing in his world. You know, a lot of Bible characters had this problem. Asaph, in Psalm chapter 73, verses 10 and 11, he says, people are dismayed, or dismayed excuse me, and confused. They ask, does God realize what's going on? Is the most high even aware? And Eliphaz, you don't want to be a friend of Job. In Job chapter 22, verses 13 and 14, he says, God can't see what I'm doing. He can't see us. He's way up there walking on the vault of heaven. And Tubal Cain. Tubal Cain, you can see him mentioned in Genesis chapter 4 verses 22 but he's the most fascinating character in the worst movie you will ever see Noah but I love this line Tubal Cain the king of the descendants of Cain says this we are abandoned orphan children cursed to live by the sweat of our brow you see when you're so busy telling God all the stuff you know you might be misled into thinking he doesn't see. I don't care who you are, how insignificant you feel right now. God has noticed you. He has come near. And while you came here on your way to someplace else, he's here. He's noticed. And he is for you. I agree with Michael Gungor. You should Google him on YouTube. Um, Michael Gungor, he's, he's the guy, he's a doctor, by the way, who says that men, okay, ladies, it's better if you don't listen right now, but, but men, uh, we, we handle stress by categorizing. We like everything in a box. So we have a big box for work, right? And we have a box for family, and we don't like our boxes to mix That's why when your husband comes home and you say, hi, sweetie, how was work today? He says, I don't want to talk about it. Because we don't like to mix our categories. That's why when men do church or men do temple or mosque, we have a specific time in our calendar when we do that stuff. The rest of the time, we've got to make a living, you know. Can't live like that all the time. I'll give it one hour. Right? And, and, and we, so, so we guys, we have boxes for everything, including friends. No, we don't have a friend's box. We don't have time for friends. We've got a, an acquaintance box. 
We don't, we don't know our guy friends really that well. They're more acquaintances. That's the best we can do. But, but here's the thing. The biggest box, Dr. Gungor says, that men have is, is the nothing box. Right? Have you seen that? It's the box we go to when we're really stressed out. So, so when I'm sitting in our living room and I'm watching Apple TV like this because I'm ADHD. Sherry says, what are you watching? I say, nothing. And, and, and when your wife comes and asks you, honey, what are you thinking about? You say, nothing. That's our box. When stress comes, we need that space where we don't talk about anything. Um, by the way, the God box is tiny. Because men, um, we prefer to be God, actually. I, mean, I, I think I can say that fairly enough. Have you, have you seen the, the poster of cats and dogs and the dog sitting there saying, these people feed me, they must be gods. And the cat is looking down saying, these people feed me, I must be a god. Men are cats. They like all our friends to be dogs, including dogs, because they worship us. Here's the news, though. Every once in a while, something so traumatic happens, it crushes our category, tears apart our boxes, because these men were not walking along saying to each other, what are you thinking about? Nothing. What are you thinking about? Nothing. They were crashing their categories. They were discussing all that had happened. That was the kind of trauma that they had experienced that day. And then suddenly... In verses 25 and 27, they were overcome. Their information was overcome by truth. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Trust me, he was not talking about the four Gospels. Those had not been written. He was talking about the Jewish Scriptures, the Torah. He went through, beginning with Moses, every Scripture concerning him who had not been born when those Scriptures had been written, some of which were written 1,500 years before Christ walked on the planet. 480 scriptures that speak of the Messiah. 48 Old Testament prophecies. That means Jesus, as he walked with these two men, spoke of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which announced the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That means he mentioned Isaiah 40, verse 3, that said his coming would be preceded by a messenger, That means he spoke about Zechariah 9, verse 9, which said he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. That means he spoke of Psalm 41, 9, which predicted he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11, verse 12, that said he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 13, that said the money would be thrown back into the temple. Isaiah 53, 5, that predicted his hands and feet would be pierced. Isaiah 53, verse 7, 
said that he would be silent before his accusers. 48 Old Testament prophecies which perfectly predicted that Jesus would be their Messiah. Do you think this service is long? If, if those were Jewish scientists or Western, you know, they might say, well, listen, we want to believe, but we, we need some evidence because in the West, you know, our faith is weak. We need science to support it. Jesus might have given them perhaps a scientific probability that one man would fulfill all of these prophecies. I looked it up. One in ten to the hundred and fifty seventh power. I don't know how many of you here know the scientific threshold for the absurd. That means less than this is impossible. The scientific threshold for the absurd is one in ten to the fiftieth power. That means if you're a scientist, if you're a Jewish scientist looking for a Messiah, it would be scientifically insane not to believe that Jesus was your Messiah. Leonid Brezhnev was once the most powerful man of the most science-prone society the world has known, Soviet Russia or the Soviet Union. When he died, he had ruled over the Soviet Union an atheist, science-leaning governance for longer than any leader except Joseph Stalin. And when he died, it was on the international news. Gary Thomas attended that funeral, and he watched and was deeply moved by Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless over the coffin, weeping over her dead husband. And soldiers, generals would go up to her and try to wipe tears and try to comfort her. And she still stood there until the last moment when the order was made to cover up that body in an extraordinarily bold move, perhaps one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience, just before they covered his body, that woman reached down and drew the cross of Christ over her husband's chest, daring to believe that her husband was wrong. Fifth, suddenly we know Jesus Verses 28 through 33, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him, they begged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened. They recognized him. Can you see what it was that enabled these two men to see Jesus for who he was? It was not the explanation all the way down the road. It was not that suddenly they had information. 
It was not some scientific model of improbability. It was not their own achievement. They didn't open their eyes. Their eyes were open. Why? Because raise the dead power can give sight to the blind. So, so Christian friend, stop trying to drag your non-believing friend to church. Stop trying to convince them with your religious arguments. This God, if he is God, in open eyes, without science, without information, suddenly their eyes were opened. And at that moment, verse 33 says, they arose and returned to Jerusalem and said, the Lord really has women. He's risen. Start believing women. He's risen. gone late but some of you I won't see again until Christmas so this one last story my earliest memory of my life in Vancouver was when I was three Uh, we were living on East 34th Avenue I asked my mom about five years ago where we were living when I was three because when you're three you know where the cookie jar is you don't know where you live We were living on East 34th Avenue in Vancouver. My brother was five. When you're three, five is a giant, right? And my brother was a risk taker. And so he took me on a journey a long way away. It was like three houses away from our house. And this one little house in our neighborhood, it had a dip in the backyard. And in the the backyard were peach trees. And I remember I was three because I was up in that tree thinking to myself, I'm a great climber for just being three. My brother was on the ground, not a very great climber. When you see him, tell him. But this was in the fall, and suddenly um, the first heavy rain of winters came, and it came with dark clouds. It seemed like all of a sudden to me, I was in that tree, and then this sudden boom of thunder that I don't think I'd ever heard before. It made me squeal. I'll just say that. And it made my brother run away. Now, now I don't remember how I got down from that tree, but I remember stumbling after my brother. You see, I had three-year-old legs. They weren't standing that long, and I I was trying to catch up to him, but he had giant, monstrous five-year-old legs, and he ran off and left me. Remind him of that, too. I remember knowing terror for the first time in my life. I was running and crying, and I remember climbing up that hill on my hands and knees, crying like a little girl. And I got to the top of that hill and I saw something that made all of my fears disappear. I saw my father's shoes. The best thing, he was standing in them. And he bent down and he picked me up and he said, little gump, you'll be okay. That's what he called me, gump. Little gump, you'll be okay. And I was crying and then I was sniffling, then I was laughing In my dad's arms. Now here's what I want to say. A lot of us today arrived here. Chasing after five year olds. 
know, that great job opportunity, that's a five-year-old. Catch it if you can. That beautiful bungalow you're hoping, that's a five-year-old. Get in that if you can. But your father is here. And there's going to be times in your life when you catch that five-year-old and it won't be enough for you. There will be times in your life when you're sitting in that beautiful bungalow remembering how desperately you wanted it, thinking it's full of stuff, but I'm empty. Remember your father's there. Feel the embrace of your father. It won't be information. It won't be because you're more righteous than other people. It's just because he is able to help you to see who he really is. I want to invite you to bow with me. As we go to him in prayer, I'm just talking to him as if he's in this room because I believe that he is. And if you're here this afternoon, uh, you may have come for lots of reasons. Maybe you just didn't find a way to say no. So here you are. Maybe you're a member of GBC and you're like, oh, it's, it's Easter. I feel guilty if I don't show up on Easter. So for whatever reason, you came. Christ is drawing near to you right now. If he is real, if he is the true and living God who fills us up with peace, died so that we could live, would you not want him to open your eyes to know who he is, to realize that his affection for you is all-consuming, so great that he would leave paradise, suffer indignation of the religious, beatings, being thrust open by a spear, nailed to a tree, so great was his love for you. Do you want to know? As we find ourselves in his presence on this Resurrection Sunday. Just as he has risen in the lives of these young adults who were baptized this afternoon, he desires to rise up in you, fill you with everything that he is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and this life full more abundant. That's why as a young man, I gladly did the same that these young adults did. I laid my life down. I said, Jesus, if you're real, turn to you. Because while I was on my way, running from parents and religion, you came near, walked with me. He will do the same for you. He's not just the God of Canadians. He's not just the God of young Singaporeans. He's the God of rich and poor, Asian and American, European and African. He's the God of nations. He loves us each, everyone. Father God, I pray for these who have gathered in this place. I invite you to make yourself real to them. 
Help them to know that if they feel this tugging in their heart, in their stomach, it's not because they've heard a good speech. It's because you have come near. You desire to walk with us, to strengthen us, to purify us, to fill us with all that you are so that we too might be buried with Christ and raised to walk forevermore. This is our prayer, that you would draw near, walk with us for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name.